Well, hey, my name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor here. Uh, this fall was my first fall with the students, and so when we kicked off Renovation Youth, I wanted to meet as many of the students in, as possible. And while I was talking to them and I heard them talk amongst themselves, they were saying like words and phrases that I had never heard before and I had no idea what they meant. Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? Because Gen Z has their own lingo, Right? And if you don't understand the lingo, if you don't understand that world, it's hard to communicate with them. And so over a couple of weeks, I started to gather a couple of these words that I was hearing the most that I didn't understand. And I made a dangerous expedition to Urban Dictionary to learn what these words meant so that you wouldn't have to. And so this morning, as we get started, uh, we're all going to learn together a couple of these Gen Z vocab words that are needed to communicate with them. Cool? Cool. All right. First one. First one is selling. I'm going to put it on the screen. Selling. Now, selling is, a, you know, you'd think, oh, we have some entrepreneurs in our youth group. Like, we have some, they're, like, they're, it's a financial transaction. You're buying or selling something, but this is why the reason we're doing this, because it could not mean anything more remotely close than that, all right? So selling is a verb, and it means to sabotage a teammate or to be bad at something, particularly a sport or a video game. So if you hear an eighth grade boy say to his friend, hey, why are you selling right now? He means friend. Why are you being bad at spike ball? Friend, why are you making us lose in Fortnite right now, right? That's what he means. All right, next word is mid. Now, this one is a little bit more self-explanatory, right? Because it stands for middle. So this word is an adjective. It describes something as average, 5 out of 10, middle of the road, right? If you ask an 11th grade girl, hey, how was your lunch at school today? She might go, it was mid. Like, eh, nah, movie was mid, right? Eh, just mid, okay? That's mid. Last one is slay. Now, slay... I have to say, when I've heard this one for the first time, I was the most confused with this one. I was like, uh-oh, I don't like where we're going with this one. But slay is a verb that means to succeed at something or to do something well or even to look good. So if one girl says, says to her friend, yes, slay, it means that she looks good or she did something well. So give yourselves a round of applause. You now know you have the vital vocab skills to communicate with Gen Z. Right, because words matter. Right, because words describe reality. They describe things the way they are. So this morning, the Bible does the same thing. Oftentimes, the Bible will describe someone or describe the way someone is, their characteristics, their character, based on a name or a title. And so this morning, we're pressing pause on the book of Colossians, and we're starting a new series called The Names of God, uh, called The Names of God. And our goal is that in this series, you would have and learn a more broad and uh, better understanding, a more broad and full understanding of who God is through these words. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the Lion of Judah. So grab a Bible. If you have one that looks like this, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 37. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 40. Nine, And I'll meet you there in a moment, but a little bit of context about where we're dropping in in the book of Genesis. Jacob has now been renamed to Israel. And so Jacob is in Egypt with his 12 sons. And his 12 sons are going to become, their descendants will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jacob in Genesis 49 is getting close to dying. 
And so he's prophesying over his 12 sons, and he's prophesying about the 12 tribes of Israel. And so where we're picking up, we're looking at Jacob's prophecy over his son, Judah. So uh, Genesis 49, starting in verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. This is the language of the lion. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter, which signifies power and authority, like from a king, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his." So there's a lot happening here, but we're just going to focus on verse 8 for the moment. In verse 8, we see that Jacob tells Judah, your brothers will praise you, or your father's sons will bow down to you, which is a long way of saying your brothers again, right? So your brothers will bow down to you. And what Jacob is prophesying over his son Judah is that his descendants, right, the tribe of Judah that will come from him, they will be the kingly tribe in Israel, if you think about like the mighty King David and the wise King Solomon, they were from the lion or the, the tribe of Judah. Um, it, let's look at uh, verse 10 really quickly here. The scepter will not depart from Judah, right? That's the royalty, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he, right, there's an extra person here, someone else that Jacob is talking about. This is not talking about Judah until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations, which is a fancy way of saying to rule over, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Right, so Jacob isn't prophesying about Judah, per se. He's not prophesying about the, the tribe of Judah. He's not prophesying about the mighty kings of Judah, but he's prophesying past them. And he's prophesying about the coming Messiah, and he's, he illustrates a couple of things. He shows three things about this coming Messiah. We'll show them up on the screen here. The first one's this, this future king will be from the line of Judah. Second, he will rule forever. And third, his rule will be over the entire world. And he describes this coming Messiah in verse 9. It's about Judah, but it's also about the, the one coming from Judah, right? This lion. And a lion is a fitting picture for a coming king, right? A lion is the king of the beast. It's the king of the animal kingdom. A lion is also, it shows symbolism and imagery of royalty and power and authority, right? So a lion is appropriate for this coming king. So this Messiah is Jesus. He's from the line of Judah, and he will rule like a lion. So this brings us to our first truth about Jesus this morning. We're going to see three of them. The first one is this. Jesus is the lion who will rule forever. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of verse 10. He is from the line of Judah, and when he comes back at his second coming, he will initiate his rule. He will start his rule over the, the entire world. Now, if we want to get technical, like just like a little bit technical, Jesus has always been king, right? Like the author of creation, the one who created everything and is over everything, like he's king. He's sovereign over all. But the way that the Bible describes the Messiah's rule is a geopolitical one. 
a rule in the same way that the mighty kings of David and Solomon, the same way that they ruled, that's what's described for the Messiah's kingdom. And so the question is, okay, when does the, that rule start, or has it already started, right? And I, I think it has. I was talking to Pastor Josh a lot about that this week. We're entering into the Christmas season now, right, thinking towards the coming of Jesus, Jesus' birth, his first advent, right? When Jesus came and he was born into the world 2,000 years ago, he came as king, right? When Jesus was on the cross, what was the sarcastic sign above his head? It said the king of the Jews, but ironically, it was true. So when Jesus came the first time, he came as king, but he was rejected. He was rejected by the the Jews, he was rejected by the world, but he still went to the cross, still paid for the sins of the world, died three days later, rose from the dead, showed proof of his resurrection to 500 people, and then 40 days after that, ascended into heaven, where he is right now sitting at the right hand of the Father, where he's doing what? He's ruling as king. And so right now, we're in this like weird limbo period where Jesus is the rightful ruler of the world, but the world hasn't acknowledged him as such. He hasn't come back and taken that earthly throne yet. I think a good way of explaining this is kind of uh, in, in a similar, similar way to how we elect U.S. presidents, right? And I, don't, I know you don't want to talk about politics on a Sunday morning, but if we think forward to the 2024 presidential election, all of us or those of us who are eligible to vote will vote on the first Tuesday of November. Once we find out who wins, that person doesn't automatically take power. I hope some of you are not learning this for the first time. So we have to wait two and a half months until January 20th when we have the uh, presidential inauguration, right? That's when the official changing of the guard happens, right? So that president might win, but we're in this limbo period of a couple months until he actually takes office. Same way here with Jesus. Not that he will be elected, but he's the rightful king. He's already reigning as king, but right now we're in this window. We're in this limbo period where it hasn't fully been inaugurated yet. So here in Genesis, we start to see glimpses, the the language of this lion of Judah. But we don't really see it pop up in the rest of the Old Testament. Not in the history books of the Old Testament, not really in the prophets. Now, we don't see it in the Gospels of the New Testament or the letters of the New Testament, but we see it pop up again all the way in Revelation. So grab your Bible again. We're going cover to cover this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 5. It's going to be on page uh, 839. And so uh, we are changing between drastically different contexts. So the book of Revelation was written by the disciple John. The disciple John was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, and he wrote a couple of the books of the New Testament, including Revelation. And Revelation is a book about the things to come, right? It's a vision given by God to John about what will happen in the future. So it's apocalyptic literature. It's a vision. So there's a lot of imagery, a lot of things that can be confusing, but we're going to be focusing on the lion of Judah. And in Revelation 5 here, we're seeing John's, uh, the, the first opening stages of his vision. And so turn to uh, Revelation 5. I'm going to need to join you guys there here in a second. Revelation 5, starting in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll, uh, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open it or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So John, in this vision, the disciple John sees uh, God the Father holding this scroll. And there's a lot of uh, kind of back and forth about what this scroll could be. The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us, so it's not like vitally important. But I think the most probable answer for what the scroll is, is it's a will. It's God's final will, his, his set of affairs for what will happen and bring the world to completion. Uh, at the time that the book of Revelation was written, they would write wills on both, both sides of the scroll. On one side, you would have a summary, and on the other side, you'd have like specific line items about a person's will for after they pass away. And they would roll it up, and they would seal it with seven wax seals. So this will, or this, this scroll, is likely God's final plan, his list of affairs, his final conclusion for the world. But the scroll itself isn't really the emphasis, right? We see the emphasis show up because they're trying to find someone who's worthy to take it and to open it. And the angel's searching throughout the world, and nobody is worthy. No one on earth, no, no one in Hades, no one is worthy, no created man worthy to open the scroll. I've shared this, with this uh, statistic before with, uh, at Renovation Youth, but there are estimates that there have been over a hundred billion people who have ever lived over like the last 10,000 years. A hundred billion people with a B. That's a lot of people, none of them worthy to open the scroll. But then we see Jesus enter the scene, and, and, and the elder turns to John and he says, See, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He can open the scroll in its seven seals. And so John turns from grief to hope because he remembers back to Genesis chapter 49. He remembers the prophecy of this coming Messiah from the line of Judah, how he will rule like a lion. And he remembers and he knows that it's Jesus. And so John is getting ready. He's, he's turning. He's, he's looking for this mighty king. He's looking for this lion. And join me in verse 6 really quickly. This is what he sees. Revelation 5, verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. Those two just signify his eternal power, his eternal knowledge, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. So the disciple John, in this vision, sees this Lamb. Right? And, and we know that the Lamb is an image for Jesus. Right? And this Lamb has marks of being slain. So what are those marks? Well, it's probably scars from the crown of thorns. Slightly, likely a gash in his side from the spear. 
holes in his hands and his feet from the nails. Right, Jesus will eternally bear the marks of his execution on the cross. And we will always have an eternal reminder of what Jesus did for us. I mean, how beautiful is that? Some other um, translations when describing this lamb will describe it as like a, a little lamb or a delicate lamb. And I don't know about you guys, but when you try to think about something really intimidating, like John is expecting an intimidating, mighty, fierce lion that steps up to the place, the plate, and he sees a little lamb, right? I mean, if we want to be intimidating or fierce, like if we think about sports for a second, if we want to strike intimidation and fear into our opponents, we name our teams the Timberwolves, the Vikings, right? The, uh, the fighting lambs or the... Uh, the gentle lambs, right? That's not, that's not going to be fierce. It's not mighty sounding, right? It doesn't have that intimidation factor. In fact, I was, uh, I was telling Pastor David about this idea this week. And he goes, Matt, I've got the perfect meme you have to show on Sunday morning. And so he sent me this meme, and I just thought it was amazing. Uh, we, we're going to take advantage of it this year, right? Maybe not next season, but this season we'll be able to throw these up. This has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but (laughs) this leads us to our second truth about Jesus this morning, and it's this. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. Jesus has the strength of the lion, but he has the gentleness of the lamb, right? Jesus is both. He's not one or the other. He doesn't flip between the two however he chooses. He's a perfect mix of the two images. Perfectly fierce, but perfectly gentle at the same time, right? So we kind of parse this out a little bit. We're going to go through a couple of these about Jesus as the lion and the lamb. The first one, Jesus as the lamb faced death as the sacrifice for the world. In the Old Testament, the, the Jews, the Israelites, they would uh, do animal sacrifices to atone, to pay for their sin. Right? So if they sinned, they would bring a little lamb to the altar and, and they would kill it. And that blood would cover their sin. But it was an imperfect system. It was, it was foreshadowing. It was looking towards the coming perfect sacrifice where there wouldn't have to be another one afterwards. Right? And so then Jesus comes onto the scene. He lives a perfect life, sinless Imagine a perfect, sinless life. And he went to the cross. And on the cross, he was the perfect sacrifice, the white lamb with no blemish who was slain. And he paid for the sins of the world. At the same time, Jesus, as the lion, conquered sin and death and gives hope to the world. Right? So Jesus, as the, the, the lamb, he was the perfect sacrifice. And Jesus, as the lion, rose from the dead, defeating the curse of sin and death, right? And he gives us hope from that, two in particular. The first one is that if we put our trust in Jesus, we start following him, we can have the hope that we can have power over sin in our lives, that it doesn't have to reign anymore. And the second hope is that one day we will receive an eternal glorified body just like Jesus, Like, heaven isn't going to be some ethereal realm where we're a spirit wandering in the clouds. No, it's going to be very earthly, a good earthly experience with glorified bodies that aren't going to decay anymore, that aren't going to ache and age, and there's not going to be pain. We have hope that Jesus will resurrect us and give us a glorified body 
like his. At the same time, as the lamb, Jesus as the lamb offers grace and forgiveness to sinners. Jesus has so much grace. So much forgiveness. I think I, I hear sometimes people say, I go, I, I don't know, I'm pretty, I, I've done so many things, like you have no idea what I've done, and I'm just thinking, you don't know who Jesus is then. You don't know the grace and the forgiveness that he offers, and he finds joy in offering it too. And so Jesus, as the lamb, offers that forgiveness, but it's a free gift. It's freely offered to those who would be humble enough to approach him and ask. Right? Usually the lamb is not a stumbling block for salvation. It's our pride. And our pride says, oh, I'm not that bad. Or I'm not as bad as that girl or guy. Or I have never, like, killed anyone. Right? My sin's not hurting anybody. Right? That's pride speaking. Right? But the lamb offers forgiveness if we are humble enough to see ourselves the way that God sees us. Sinners with an antidote. Sinners with forgiveness ready if we would be humble enough to approach him and ask. But at the same time, we need to understand Jesus as the lion. He won't let unrepentant sin go unpunished. And what I mean by unrepentant sin is any sin that hasn't been forgiven by the lamb, that hasn't been brought to Jesus for forgiveness. Now, that's a hard one for people. Because it's easy, right, to view Jesus as the lamb. Right? He offers forgiveness and grace to everybody. Right? He's such a great, such a good guy. But we omit and we leave out Jesus as the lion. And Jesus does offer full forgiveness. When you trust in Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus and, and you trust him for salvation and he changes you, your sins are gone. Past, present, future sins, they are gone, done, paid for. But at the same time, if people still choose to reject that, Jesus as the lion won't let sin go unpunished. He hates sin. If he let it go, he would be an unjust judge. It would be unloving to people who have been sinned against. And don't kid yourself, there is no sin that doesn't hurt anybody. So when it comes to this idea, as Jesus as the lion being, being fierce against sin, he hates sin. Don't run away from it. Learn to embrace it. Understand it. And when you do, let that drive you to the lamb for forgiveness. Don't let that push you away. Let that drive you to the lamb, the forgiveness that is waiting for you, and he wants to give it to you. Third one for the lamb. Jesus says the lamb is a savior worth worshiping. When you come to Jesus, it changes you, right? Because you realize how insane it is that the author of creation, right, king of the universe, came down and died for his mortal created people. That shouldn't happen. That's nuts. That's crazy. But he did it anyway. Why? Because he loves each and every one of you. And when we realize that we don't deserve what, what Jesus chose to do for us anyway, it changes us. It fills us with this awe and this worship about who he is. And he's a savior worth worshiping at the exact same time Jesus as the lion is a savior worth following. Again, it's easy to view Jesus as the lamb, 
right, forgives everybody, accepts everybody. But it's, all, it's easy to, to go on one side and just say, oh, he doesn't have a backbone. He's a pushover, right? No, but Jesus as the lion is fierce. He's powerful. He's above all. He has ultimate authority. He conquered the grave and, the, and defeated the curse of sin and death. He is worthy of your submission and your allegiance. Jesus is a worthy Savior. When I first put my trust in Jesus, the missing puzzle piece for me was Jesus as the lion. Like I, I grew up, I knew who Jesus was as the lamb, right? Died for my sins and wants a relationship with me, but I didn't understand Jesus as the lion, his severity and his hatred of sin, even though he still loved me and offered forgiveness at the same time. I didn't know that there was anybody that I needed to submit to and follow. And so that puzzle piece was huge for me. It brought me to a place of faith. And, but when that happened, I was very zealous about Jesus as the lion. I focused on that part, right? Because that's, that's the part that I thought everybody needed, the puzzle piece everybody needed to hear. And so I went to two of my best friends at the time, like literally a week after I, I put my faith in Jesus, and I went to them full of tact and smooth talk, and I said, you guys are going to hell if you don't turn from your sin. And I'm sure you can tell that conversation went over really well. Yeah, they, lo- they loved that conversation. But it was an uncompelling message. Why? Because I was presenting Jesus as the lion, but holding back Jesus as the lamb. We need to have an, a, a complete understanding, a holistic view of Jesus perfectly as both. And this leads us to the sobering truth that we see here in the opening chapters of Revelation. This is our third truth about Jesus. Those who reject the lamb at his first coming will experience the wrath of the lion at his second coming. When Jesus comes back, he is coming back with vengeance. He's not coming back as a baby. He's coming back with vengeance and wrath on those who rejected his first coming. But those who accepted the lamb... During the short window of their life, they received the forgiveness of the Lamb. They will be shielded from the wrath of the lion. And this is a sober, if you read through the rest of the book of Revelation, it's not a pretty picture. This is the sobering warning that John is issuing here in Revelation. We have a short window. You might live, I don't know, 70 years if you're lucky. We have a short window to accept the grace and the forgiveness of the lamb. And if you choose to reject that, the wrath of the lion remains on us. It remains on you because of our sin. Even more, those that hate the lamb outright, they hate the lamb, they hate what it stands for, they will experience the wrath and the judgment await that coming from the lamb that we see throughout the book of Revelation. That's coming for those that reject Jesus at his first coming and reject him as the lamb. So with that being said, with that warning being issued, let me convince you, if you haven't made this decision already, to receive the forgiveness of the Lamb. Because it blows my mind how many people might hear this and they, they think, oh, I just need to try better. I need to get my, my life in order. Or, ah, maybe I'm not actually that bad of a guy. I, I just need to add more good stuff and tip the scales in my favor. Or even people who just don't understand what it means to be a Christian. Right? And if something's not easily explained and understood in like two minutes, in my opinion, it's not worth believing. 
Okay, so this is the good news. This is what the gospel is. Okay, Romans 3.23. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned against God. Each, each of us has chosen to do that. And because of that, we remain under the wrath of the lion. Not because he's mean or angry. No, because we have chosen to rebel against him and go our own way. So we are under the wrath of the lion. Jesus, though, he saw that. And he decided to take the form of a man. He lived a perfect, spotless life. And so when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't paying for his own sin. He was paying, he didn't have any. He was paying for yours. He was paying for mine. Right, and so he died paying He paid for it. He paid for the sins of the world. Three days later, he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now he's reigning at the right hand of the Father. And so now, in the short window of our lives, right, this is the gospel, short window of our lives, Jesus is generously, with his hands wide open, offering forgiveness. He's beckoning people, asking people to come to receive his grace. He wants people to do that. But remember, the lamb usually isn't a stumbling block of salvation. The stumbling block is our pride. I had a, a college pastor who, uh, his, he told a story about how his, when his grandpa passed away, he maybe shared this, this good news, the gospel with him, like seven times, and his grandpa was just not receiving it. And so he walks into whatever hospital room, I think, and, and he just goes, Grandpa, your pride is going to keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. And so that's the message. Don't let your pride keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. Right? It's thinking, oh, I'm not that bad. Oh, I'm not that sinful. But when we see ourselves and we isolate ourselves with God and we realize how sinful we are in the presence of a holy God, it changes that. But remember He's offering forgiveness and grace of the Lamb. He's asking people to come to him. And I think some people here might need to make that decision this morning. Make it where you sit right now. Make it during this last song. And I'm telling you, this is what it looks like. It it goes from turning off of the path of sin that you're currently on, and it's turning to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I, I need your forgiveness. I know I'm a sinner. I put my trust in you. And I'm telling you, when you do that, it changes you. He changes you. He gives you a new heart. He gives you new desires. He sets you on a new path in life. And the best part about it is he walks that path with you every step of the way. We don't do life alone anymore. Okay, so that's the gospel. If you, uh, if you do make that decision, I would love to talk to you. I'm going to be off to the side of the stage after our last song here with a couple of the members from our follow-up team. And we would love to pray with you and talk to you about what it looks like to take next steps to follow Jesus as both the lion and the lamb. Lord, we come before you this morning and we are eternally grateful for the lamb. We are so thankful that even though on our own, We chose to rebel. We chose sin. We liked sin. We loved sin. Lord, you still saw that. And you came down to earth, right, the Christmas message, to come and save us, to die the death we deserve to die on the cross so that we could be with you forever. Jesus, thank you that we, there's no extra works required, nothing more that we need to do. 
just to simply approach the throne of grace with humility and ask. And know that you will find joy in giving that forgiveness and giving that new life. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.